You're listening to the Talking Crops Podcast, a service brought to you by AgFacts.com. The date's August 13th, 2015. I'm your host, Chip Ward, and today we're going to talk about China's current role in the global cotton market and how that's been influenced by recent cultural and economic events. Today on the show, I'm happy to have cotton market analyst and Mississippi State Professor Emeritus O.A. Cleveland. Oh, hey, how you doing today? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a great day. It's a great day. The cotton market's up today. The sun's out. It's just beautiful. And I, yeah, hopefully our growers are being able to take advantage of uh, the, the weather we're having and the crops are, are marching forward. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> when we were talking about doing this podcast the other day, I know a lot of stuff's been going on with China recently, but uh, there was a uh, newsletter that you put out a while ago saying that China was moving a lot of their uh, production facilities out of China and they were moving it into other countries in, in Asia, like uh, Vietnam, Bangladesh, uh, Cambodia. What is the reason for them doing that? Two things. China, uh, forever a third world country, they have, have in the past 10 years, have been developing a middle class. And with the development of this middle class, they have uh, constituted a strong consumer base, and that has led to a very strong growing economy. And it's also with this consumer base, it implies more purchasing, more purchasing power. It implies higher wages. And now what uh, has been discovered is that the Chinese can employ textile workers at a lot lower wage rate in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Bangladesh, Indonesia than they can in China. So strictly, yes, it is the cost of labor, the cost of the textile labor. Is it cheaper to import raw cotton into those countries than it is to import it into China? Uh, no, uh, not uh, it's it's very similar. Uh, the Chinese have uh, very well established uh, have a very well established infrastructure, and that allows it to be easily imported into China. However, Bangladesh has for many years been a very strong U.S. customer. Indonesia has South, certainly South Korea, uh, and all the countries in the Asian basin. Uh, so it's not just because it's it's it. Uh, it, it's cheaper or not cheaper. It's really the transportation cost is little changed. Granted, there is more uh, structure, more warehouse infrastructure sitting in China where that cotton could sit. What has made Chinese labor not as cheap anymore? Why are they having to go to those other countries? Well, again, what, what we are seeing is we do not need the number of farm workers that we used to have because technology has supplanted the, the number of workers. Right. Those workers have been released, and now they go in, and uh, they've come to the city, and now they're working in the city jobs. They're working in the stores. They're working in the factories, uh, and that's where that labor su supply comes from. So it has decreased the labor supply down on the farm. Okay. Uh, not as many people looking for that farm job. It's more glamorous to go to the city and get that city job. It's becoming work that no one wants. Right. And uh, if you want it and you have a skill, it costs more and more money. And that's what the, the textile mills have run into. Very interesting situation. It also occurred in, 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 in China. And it uh, met me head on and floored me, but yet it was totally correct. 25 years ago, I was in, I swear, did I say China? I was in Japan, 
and I was talking to a textile mill, and the gentleman, uh, certainly a very bright gentleman, rocked back in his chair and sat up or sat back and said, you know, it's just I don't know what we're going to do about our cotton business here. He says it's really bad. He said we can't get workers. He said, can you believe it? These girls now that are graduating from high school that are supposed to come work here in the plant, they don't want to. They want to go to college. And, and you know, I, I, I just, it, it took me back. Right. But that was where the Chinese textile industry was used to getting their labor force. The, the girls were supposed to graduate from high school, come to work at the mill, get married, uh, raise a family. And as the, J- the Japanese, as they became more affluent, right. then the, the, the ladies, the females, were released too, and they had gained their freedom in that, that regard. So it's, almost, it's a, like this Western culture has transitioned over the Pacific into China now. Exactly. Okay. E- exactly. Eventually it'll hit Vietnam, though, maybe. <laughs> well, it, 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 yes, it, I mean, it moves from country to country. Right. Uh, you know, used to, at, uh, in, in, at the turn of the century, all the textile mill activity was in New England. Uh, and it, that got too expensive, so we sent it down to the Carolinas, where it was that was just farmland and farmers. Yeah. And uh, then, then that got expensive, so it moved to Georgia, it moved to Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and now got so expensive it moved to Mexico and China. Right. And and now we've still got, we still have, uh, you know, there are vast supplies of labor uh, in Laos, uh, Cambodia. Those are just growing. Burma, uh, the Murmur, uh, that's a country that has gotten their act together, in my opinion, with respect to economic growth, and they have a real opportunity to increase their textile operations. Uh Indonesia had slacked off, and they've come back extremely strong. Bangladesh, a country that 50% of it is below sea level uh, and is consequently subject to a lot of flooding from time to time, uh, their their textile industry is coming back strong, and that's a country that has extremely low wage rates. So they'll they'll they will they'll continue to be a player. We don't see much textile activity in Europe. It's the same as here in the United States. It's too expensive. Yeah. Uh, the labor cost is too expensive. The one thing though that that keeps it in balance and keeps it in check from time to time, here in the United States, uh, here in in Europe, uh, and in certain locations, when you go up to that light switch and you cut it on you're going to get light. Right. In China, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Laos, sometimes you turn that switch and nothing happens. So that guaranteed supply of home energy, of electricity, of input supplies, we know we have it here in the States in certain, in certain developed areas. So that does add to or it, it offsets some of the disadvantages that, that, that we have because of price. But we know we have the infrastructure to do it. Going back on something you might have already answered, but um, what, now what exactly is the point for Chinese outsourcing yarn production in the U.S.? Chinese outsourcing yarn production in the U.S., very, very interesting, uh, an anomaly, some might say. but uh, It's almost ironic because... Uh, the Chinese pretty much gutted the textile industry 
in the U.S., and now they're outsourcing to us. <laughs> uh, exactly. It, exactly. It was uh, uh, the Chinese did. Actually, if I may, uh, however, drop back a little further, most of our yarn spinning outsourcing, we lost most of our yarn spinning into Mexico. And we lost that to U.S. firms, the same firms that were spinning in North Carolina, went across the board, went across the Rio Grande, opened plants, and spun U.S. cotton in Mexico. And they did that for the same reason the Chinese are sending cotton to Vietnam now. The labor rate was much cheaper. There's plenty of electricity, plenty of available and quality electricity in, 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 New Mex in, in Mexico. Uh, it's just cheaper labor. So in a sense, we ourselves gutted uh, our, our spinning industry because it's so much cheaper to do it in, uh, in, in Mexico. And then all of a sudden, uh, the Chinese infrastructure developed, and it was even cheaper to do it in, in China. But world growth in cotton consumption was strong enough to allow the U.S. mills to continue their ownership of the Mexican plants and do a lot of yarn spinning down there, and we still do it. But yet, I think what you're really getting at, and very correctly and very interesting, is that the Chinese now have invested money uh, large sums of money, and they have opened two spinning mills in the United States, in the Carolinas on the East Coast. Uh, so cotton's coming back home. Uh, it, and what they have determined, and it, uh, it's, they, can, they can find quality textile workers in the U.S. They can use that cotton here in the spin that cotton here in the U.S., and then ship the yarn over to China with the yarn, make the apparel, and if they need to, cut and sew and make the goods, send the goods back over here to the U.S. Uh, some of that, on some of those situations, they get around any particular tariff that they have in sending Chinese-made goods into the U.S. because since the cotton was spun in the U.S., they're able to carry it forward and just take it over and make apparel and let it come back in the U.S. without any additional tariff being paid because it was, as I say, the first textile process on that fiber occurred originally in the U.S. when it was spun into yarn. Uh, so very interesting trade ramifications there, but bottom line, the Chinese have come back to the United States or they have brought spinning back to the United States simply because it was cost efficient. They can now hire uh, efficient employees and spin that cotton here in the U.S. Noting specifically, it's a different technology set, a different uh, skill set, uh, a different workforce environment and requirement. It, the, these plants now in the U.S. are very technology-oriented. Basically, the machines run the plant. The machines do all the spinning. We just need a few humans around just to make sure the uh, electric socket works and things like that. Uh, but uh, it's, it's the technology that's made this possible, and we don't need many employees uh, because of the technology, whereas in China, you would still need more employees. 
uh, and uh, as a consequence, it lowers the cost of producing yarn enough that we can then ship the yarn and then ship the f fabric back over here. To just kind of reiterate what you were saying, so are you sa so when China comes over here and they spin the cotton into yarn, because that first process was done in the United States, it can go to China and back without any added tariffs on it because it was originally, uh, it had its first processing done in the United States. Exactly. Just bottom line, exactly. Well, that's a pretty fancy loophole. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are a lot of those in the, in the textile industry. Uh, uh, we have things, uh, the politicians or the lobbyists, uh, Washington representatives, that will talk in terms of yarn forward and uh, raw cotton forward, meaning we do some process or we uh, some process occurs at point A, and it may go to point B, C, D, E, and F, but by the time it comes back to point A, it's... Uh, it's like it all originated at point A. Right. Now, do any other countries do this? <laughs> yes, they do. It's, okay. it's, it's nothing unusual. It's, uh, it's, it, it's just an impact of public policy of different countries. We, we and, they, and they as well come up with these policies, and all of a sudden we realize they're not working quite right, so we start to tweak them. And we tweak it, and it works for us. So all of a sudden Canada says, well, we need to do the same thing, or... Or, or Brazil says, well, we need to do the same thing the U.S. did. So uh, we do that, and, and and then there is a there is a, uh, a t there's there's a there's a world board that sits and looks at all these tariffs, and they generally are are uh, exercise a great deal of common sense, and they they keep these tariffs balanced, and for the much but pretty much they they ensure that uh, people are not being gouged. Is it true that for every ton of cotton that the Chinese import from America, they have to buy double that from government reserves? That is a policy that from time to time is followed. Really? Uh, it is more of a program that is enacted uh, for X number of weeks, X number of days, uh, with with some fairly specific parameters around it. China, of course, has in the neighborhood of 60 million bales of cotton in storage. Uh, of excess supply, we'll call that. Uh, the, you, the world storage excess supply is about a 105 million bales. China has 60 million of those bales. Uh, so China owns the world stocks, basically. Yeah. And there is not enough demand to satisfy that kind of storage in China or anywhere else, given that we will grow roughly another 115 to 120 million bales in any given year, uh, and we're not going to consume any more than about that same level right now. It's 110, 120 million bales. So these world stocks have to be worked off the market. At the same time, much of that uh, stock problem that China has, it's old cotton. It goes back to 2010, 2008, 2007. It's cotton that's that old, eight to 10 years old. And cotton does lose its quality over time. So there's a great deal of discussion as to what can be done with 
the bulk of those excess supplies hanging in China. And uh, as a consequence, they, they, they sit there. The Chinese mills themselves do not want, want them. Again, even China now has fairly sophisticated textile machinery, uh, basically as, as sophisticated as anywhere in the world with the exception of these two plants that they, the Chinese built here in the United States. And uh, they have to have good cotton. In fact, all the Chinese machinery now requires machine-picked uh, cotton that's a minimum of strictly mill an inch and a sixteenth, and they really don't want that. They will take that, but they'll discount it. They want a four, They want a 31 or a 21, and they want a staple length of 36, 37. If you're getting this old cotton that isn't very... Uh, it isn't a high quality. Do do companies that buy that? Uh, what do they do with that unwanted cotton? Do they just make like bad state fair prizes out of it? Like? <laughs> That's another great analogy. Bad state fair prizes. Yeah, uh, and that is a, there's a lot of truth to that as well. That's uh, actually a lot of U.S. firms are concerned about what will they do if some of these uh, some of this cotton comes in the United States in the form of a product that's not going to last very long. No, the, uh, uh, let's get back to the crux of your question. Is it one bale? Uh, you, have to, you, have, you have to buy two bales of Chinese cotton for every one bale of U.S. you import. Sometimes you can buy two bales of U.S. for every two bales you import. It's a sliding scale, and sometimes you only have to, you can buy one bale for only a half a bale of U.S. cotton that you buy, and sometimes you don't have to buy any uh, local cotton. You can buy just U.S. cotton. So the Chinese government uses that just to kind of move their excess supply out of out of storage. Uh, and it's just based on, I guess, what the current numbers are right, with storage right, and stuff like right. that? It's, it's based on that, and it's, uh, it's tended to work uh, with the with the textile industry in China, the high quality textile industry in China, moving certainly to Vietnam and these two plants now in uh, in in the United States, a lot of spinning plants have closed, but there are still a number, a much smaller number of spinning operations operating in China using Chinese cotton. But by and large, it is a very coarse count yarn. It's a yarn, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's, in other words, it's going to be a very rough blue jean or a very rough towel. It's not going to have a smooth finish. It's not going to be slick. Uh, uh, and, and that cotton that's in storage, that quote-unquote inferior cotton in China, can be used for those products. It's not a terry towel like we're going to buy at Costco on discount or we're going to buy at Bloomingdale's or or a Dillard's or a place like that as a, as a nice retail towel. But uh, the world has a market for, for those towels and uh, those, uh, those, those kind of uh, denim uh, jeans. So th they, they, can make that, they can make those products out of it. Uh, there's not an unlimited uh, demand for that, uh, that type of cotton, but it's out there so they can work it off as time goes by. And Chinese, it, the Chinese are not building inventory. They recognize that they built their inventory too high, 
and now they've backed off and they're not growing as much cotton. Just a side note to that, China had been the world's largest producer for approximately 15 years. That has swung back and forth through the, through the decades. But for about the last 15 years, China had been the world's largest grower. This past year, China's starting to cut back. India now is the world's largest grower of cotton. China will continue to cut back, and they will de de depend more now on imported cotton. They don't need the, the, the farm laborer that they used to need. Uh, everybody grew up on the family farm. Uh, one family may have had 10 acres, 15 acres, 5 acres. And now then, this acreage, just as we had in the United States in the 1920s, the late 1800s, the 1930s, is that acreage is now being consolidated into larger farms. So consequently, there's a huge release of labor to the city, to the workforce, to the industrial workforce, and that's how this this middle class begins to be created in China. So it's uh, it's it's we, we'll see less cotton production a, as a result of this, and it's. Uh, it will allow for those countries that have a comp competitive advantage or a comparative advantage in cotton, and those countries would be, and I, I'm going to speak in terms of regions now, but that would be certainly West Texas, uh, the Mid-South, certain parts of the Southeast, certain parts of California to some degree, just have an advantage and will always grow cotton. Uh, maybe not nearly as much as we, we used to in certain areas, but uh, by and large, it'll still it'll still hang around because it can be grown at a very profitable level. Uh, but uh, the Chinese themselves will not c continue to have this carryover problem once they can work those stocks off. But it's probably going to take in the neighborhood of another five to seven to maybe ten years to get rid of all that. How did they come about to have that much extra supply? Uh, the Chinese made a public policy decision that they were going to maintain their textile industry, and they had to do that to keep people at work, to keep them happy. didn't matter if the people were buying the, the product that was being made. They just had to have the people working. Right. So they, they, they allowed themselves to to build what's called what was called a strategic reserve of cotton. Now the U.S. has a strategic reserve of oil. Many countries have strategic reserves of various commodities. Uh, China had three different commodities that they that they banked, right. so to speak. Cotton was one, and now they've said we don't need a strategic reserve for cotton. We can do away with it. It right. does not serve our economy anymore. But yet they're still stuck with this cotton, so they've got to work it off. Right. It, it has value. It just does not compete now with, uh, with basically the world's marketplace. It's got to step down to a lower level. Right. Speaking on uh, current events, the, uh, devalu the devaluation of the, the yuan, how is this going to affect uh, current cotton markets? Well, it uh, certainly it makes, it makes U.S. cotton more expensive to the Chinese textile mill. Uh, which by in, in and of itself is a little bit troubling. However, uh, China themselves, as we've talked about, has been in the process of building the Vietnamese textile industry. The same textile conglomerations that operate China 
groups, the same groups, the same money said, ah, oh, we can't make it here in China. We can do it a whole lot less expensive in Vietnam. Let's move it to Vietnam. Right. Vietnam, five, six years ago, imported maybe a million bales of cotton, maybe. Uh, today, you know, Vietnam imports five million, headed to six million. Uh, Vietnam uh, this year became the largest importer of cotton from the United States that we have, uh, except for China. And Vietnam will be, probably this year or next year, the, our largest importer, uh, supplanting China, right. i.e. it's the same. It's really being paid out of the same checkbook. It's just uh, it's going to Vietnam instead of, instead of China. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that's that. It's, it's made it very interesting. So is uh, it is it going to be positive or negative though? Oh, oh okay. I guess, I guess that's what I'm really yeah, looking uh, for. Well, bottom line, the, actually, the U.S. has been after uh, China to devalue its yuan. Uh, some people call it the yuan. Some people call it the RMB. Some people call it the RMB. Uh, but now they've done it to themselves. <laughs> right now, but now they yeah they they were forced to do it because of the the, the the overextended situation that they had gotten into, just as we did in beginning in 2008. See, the Chinese have experienced about 15 years of double-digit growth. Just go, 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 go. Just build, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow. And they overextended themselves just like we, the U.S. economy, had gotten in the situation in 2008, 2009, and now their bubble has burst, and they've got to pull back. They they have to have uh, some capital that's going, it's lost, it was too speculative, uh, and it will slow their economy uh, without question, and that's why it has slowed. Uh, it's, the industrial commodities are hit worse than cotton. Uh, because it's going to slow building. It's not going to necessarily slow uh, the purchase of clothing. Uh, now, we are having a bit of a downside in demand for clothing, and it caught us off guard. We thought we would actually see an increase because of the energy saving that was uh, that would be associated with the lower gas prices. Right. Well, that savings has truly come about, that, that energy savings has truly come about, but the consumer has not used that to purchase goods and services. The consumer, after about 25 years of not saving any money, the consumer is saving all of this benefit. And rather than the money going into the market and uh, pushing the market, pushing, uh, pushing the economic growth, sitting back in savings for another day. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We needed to get back and save money in the United States. The U.S. Had, had lost its savings. But now that we're saving the money, it has slowed the economic recovery that we had begun. Well, oh, oh wait, man, thanks for uh, doing the podcast and everything and stopping by. I really I was, appreciate it. Thank well, you all. I appreciate oh, yeah. it. Uh, good marketing and good farming. At ACVAX, we're serious about crops. Connect to crop production, marketing info, and weather reports at ACFAX.com. That's A-G-F-A-X.com. We'll keep you informed. Copyright ACFAX, LLC.